Welcome back, everyone, to the Written in Blood History Podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you've been listening to my show for a while now, I have a favor to ask you. If you could go to wherever you listen and leave a rating or review, I would sincerely appreciate that. Those ratings and reviews are part of an algorithm that, frankly, I'm not sure anybody completely understands, but however it works, the more reviews and ratings you have, the higher you show up on the listings. So it behooves me to ask you to leave me a rating or review. I sincerely appreciate it. Another way you can help me out is to become a patron of the show. If you go to patreon.com slash writteninbloodhistory, there you can find the donate button to donate whatever amount of money suits you. Your donations go directly to purchasing the research material for the show, as well as hosting fees and website fees and all the things that go along with podcasting. So that's my sales pitch. Just wanted to get that in there. I really appreciate you guys tuning in today. For today's show, since this is going to be airing in the month of March, I always like to do something Irish for March. But today's subject isn't actually Irish, even though the story, his story, is very much about Ireland. I first discovered this subject when I was browsing through my grandmother's genealogy research material, and she had a list of names of people who appeared at the signing of the Magna Carta, and she circled a name. And there was a little notation next to the circle that said that one of my surnames is a derivative of this name and that there's a chance there's some sort of family lineage there. Unfortunately for grandma, it turns out she was actually wrong about that. But in that research about proving or disproving her theory, I discovered the man behind the name on this document. And I was blown away and a little disappointed that I wasn't related to him because he's got a really cool story. And that story is what we're about to get into. The man's name is John de Courcy, and he was the Lord of Ulster. On September 19th, 2005, a man died by the name of John de Courcy. In life, he was the 35th Baron Kingsale of Ireland, which was an ancient barony owing fealty to the King of England. But there is a truly unique inheritance with this barony that most say is a complete fabrication. Yet it was well known enough that Mark Twain mentioned it in his Prince and the Pauper. This inheritance is the right to remain covered while in the presence of the King of England. For everyone else, they must remove their head coverings. To our modern sensibilities, this may seem like a small thing, but in medieval Europe, this would have been an enormous concession on the part of a king. It's the equivalent to telling the king that though he reigns over the de Courcy barony, he does not rule them, that they are born equal men. This right that may or may not be total fiction comes from a story about John de Courcy, but... Not the John de Courcy who died in 2005. No, this would be his ancestor who lived over 800 years ago by the same name. 
The story goes that King John, the same King John who's the villain in the Robin Hood stories and who was forced to sign the Magna Carta by his barons, this same King John was at war with France. And to settle one particular dispute, the French king challenged England to produce its best warrior for a single duel against France's best warrior. The French warrior was of such renown that no Englishman would face him. And so, the king called on an old fighter who had been stripped of his land and titles and was now wasting away in the Tower of London. The man's name was John de Courcy. When John appeared before the French warrior, his height and strength and, and martial skill as a knight was of such fame that the Frenchman fled the field without daring to fight this most famous warrior of old. The king, relieved at his change of fortune, offered John de Courcy everything he had unto half his kingdom. But John, who utterly despised this king, only asked that his descendants forever retain the right to remain covered in the presence of the king of England. And the king granted him his request. Now, this tale is almost assuredly exaggerated, or perhaps entirely fabricated, but this inheritance of John de Courcy has persisted through the ages nonetheless. And so, such a reputation begs the question, who the hell was John de Courcy? Well, fear not, I'm going to tell you. While he is largely forgotten about today, and despite being an Anglo-Norman, he is essentially one of the most important benefactors in Irish history. In this month of March, when St. Patrick's Feast Day is celebrated both liturgically and secularly, it's worth mentioning that without this Norman knight, St. Patrick might not enjoy the universal fame that he now has. John de Courcy was born around 1150 in Northamptonshire, England. His father, Jordan, was a minor lord who reigned over a manor called Middleton Cheney. And by manor, think of it like a plantation in that it was a vast piece of land and was entirely self-sufficient. There weren't slaves, per se, but there were tenants and peasants who occupied the different levels of this closed hierarchy within the manor. The tenants maintained the smaller houses throughout the manor, and their crops and their livestock were tended to by the peasantry. The surplus of all their work was fed back up the chain to the lord of the manor as payment for their use of the land. This system of tenancy was integral to the feudal society of medieval England. As a younger son, Jordan de Courcy was lucky to be lord of anything. His older brother, William, had inherited the massive honor of Stogercy, which is actually a combination of two family names, Stoke and Courcy. This lordship occupied huge parts of Somerset, Devon, and Yorkshire, but also controlled many manors throughout all of England. An older brother, William, gave Jordan Middleton Cheney partly out of duty, but it was also a quid pro quo as was the entire feudal system. In feudal England, all the land belonged to the king. He allowed the lords, also known as tenants-in-chief, to occupy and improve the land. They then distributed their holdings to men lesser than themselves. William was a tenant-in-chief. Jordan, John de Courcy's father, was one of these lesser men. But the catch was that when called upon, these lesser men had to turn out for war in support of their lord. On the field of battle, they materialized as mounted knights. And so, as it was for his father, John de Courcy learned at a very early age the English ways of horsemanship and mortal combat. At times, even the king would call on soldier quotas by the tenants-in-chief. Thus, these knights that were scattered throughout the shires and the dells of the English countryside constituted the royal army. But there was a change of foot in the feudal system around the time of John de Courcy's coming of age. The crown had begun accepting money in lieu of manpower for war. The king would then use that money to raise an army of mercenaries. John de Courcy, 
being the son of a younger son, and having little expectation of any inheritance, became one of these mercenaries. As John traveled England, especially northern England, he made the acquaintance of other landless, youthful, glory-driven aristocrats with an insatiable appetite for adventure. They became valuable friends. For these young men looking for adventure, Ireland was the land of opportunity. In May of 1169, Anglo-Norman mercenaries landed on Irish shores and began conquering and deposing the scattered Irish kings. Each territorial gain was claimed for the Kingdom of England. And this emerald isle that the tentacles of the Roman Empire had failed to touch was being usurped by the Normans, who had done the same thing to England just a hundred years prior. Within two years, the Irish nobility was completely overwhelmed by merchant-adventuring lords like Strongbow, Earl of Pembroke. Soon, these usurpers began establishing new lordships of their own. In 1171, John de Courcy landed in Ireland in the service of a man named John Poor, who was shipping cavalry and supplies at the behest of the king to reinforce the various Norman princes gobbling up Irish real estate. King Henry II, who was the overlord of this conquest, personally visited Dublin while John de Courcy was working for poor. John, as I said, was the son of a younger son, a lesser man, and he was nothing if not ambitious. And he, no doubt, always had his eye out for opportunity. For John de Courcy, opportunity lay in the north, in a yet unconquered territory called Ulster. Ulster was a complex region. It was controlled by three territorial kings who were not entirely friendly with each other, but if mobilized, they could easily outnumber any Norman incursion. The story goes that John de Courcy approached King Henry II and asked him for a grant to establish a lordship in Ulster, as had been granted to so many other Normans in Ireland. And allegedly, the king laughed at John, but he gave him his grant to Ulster. That is, if John could conquer it. John de Courcy at this time was probably in his early 20s. He had, it seems, a good reputation as a fighter, and he was certainly built like one. Geraldus Cambrensis of Wales, who documented much of what we know about the conquest of Ireland, says John was, quote, of fair complexion and tall, with bony and muscular limbs, of large size and very strong made, being very powerful, of singular daring, and a bold and brave soldier from his very youth. Such was his ardor to mingle in the fight that even when he had the command, he was apt to forget his duties as such and exhibit the virtues of a private soldier instead of a general and impetuously charge the enemy among the foremost ranks, so that if his troops wavered, he might have lost the victory by being too eager to win it. But although he was thus impetuous in war and was more a soldier than a general, in times of peace, he was sober and modest and paying due reverence to the Church of Christ. He was exemplary in his devotions and in attending holy worship, nor did he forget in his successes to offer thanksgivings and ascribe all to the divine mercy, giving God all the glory as often as he had achieved anything glorious. End quote. So far as historians can tell, John returned to England after his excursion in Ireland, but King Henry's promise of Ulster, while probably made in jest, if made at all, gnawed at John de Courcy's thoughts. And five years later, in 1176, he returned to Dublin under King Henry's latest appointed administrator for the island, a man named William Fitzadelin. John was once again a paid mercenary, and he and two other men commanded around ten knights each, and each knight had a retinue of pages and squires and servants all at their disposal, as well as large groups of foot soldiers from each knight's tenancy. John, by this time, had made quite a name for himself as a soldier for hire, and he had to, for his father had recently died, leaving John only a single manor to inherit. 
None of the lucrative de Courcy lands from Normandy or England passed down to him. Those all went to greater men. Author Steve Flanders describes the situation bequeathed to John, quote, These were poor prospects indeed for the young John, and it's no wonder that he spent the next few years making his way as a penniless fighter, hiring himself out to whoever might need a knight's murderous abilities. The best employer was, of course, the king, as he always needed armed men to police his far-flung territories and to fight in his regular summer campaigns. Catching the king's eye was not easy, however, and John first had to build up that personal experience and expertise in warfare for which he was subsequently praised by contemporaries. End quote. Steve Flanders continues, quote, Being chosen for Ireland was no accident. John undoubtedly put himself forward for the post. He had had his sights set westward from his teenage years when he first learned from his contacts in northern England and Galway about the fragile political situation in Ulster and the tremendous potential that it offered to a determined and risk-taking adventurer such as himself. After all, he had very little to lose and all to gain by chancing his luck in Ireland. End quote. I think it's pretty fair to guess that John de Courcy arrived in Ireland with little intention of actually serving under the king's attendant, Aldolin. Almost as soon as he got there, he and other knights began grumbling about Aldolin's leadership style, and he just wasn't aggressive enough for these young adventurers. And Aldolin, it seems, according to contemporary accounts, preferred to buy off the Irish lords as opposed to conquering them, forcing the knights to keep their swords sheathed and their horses stabled. And this was like trying to keep a bull on a leash. And thus it was that John de Courcy convinced 22 fellow knights, along with their 300 foot soldiers, to break from their commander, to make names for themselves, to establish their own lordships, and to follow him and march north to conquer Ulster. The blatant disobedience towards the king's man wasn't the only unorthodox part of John de Courcy's plan. It was also winter. And throughout most of history, armies kept their quarters during the winter months. Few went on the march. As for Ulster, at the time, it was controlled principally by the kingdom of Dalfiatak. Of this kingdom, Flanders says it, quote, comprised of a small but comparatively well-organized maritime territory with considerable resources, but bedeviled by factional divisions and dynastic rivalries within the ruling family. Its rich farmlands were productive, being noted for its grain production. John knew that it was not just a prize worth winning. It was also ripe for conquest. His plans were well-researched, well-organized, and he did not just head north from the Dublin garrison on some vague whim. He knew exactly where he was going and the situation he would find there. For he had spent his teenage years in northern England among those who were knowledgeable about the lands across the Irish Sea. End quote. John de Courcy's 22 knights and 300 foot soldiers marched north for three days in February of 1177. After passing through Meath, they arrived at Downhill at dawn. On the fourth day, the king, Rory MacDunlevy, who occupied the fort on the hill, must have been completely shocked at the army now standing before him in the morning mist. How had he not known such a Norman force was on the march? Well, no one can say for certain, but other kings must have been bought off or made promises to to keep his movements secret. Irish aid was made evident by the fact that de Courcy's force had picked up a substantial number of native soldiers on the march. It may have simply been that the other Irish kings were just happy that John was only marching through their territory and not taking it. Whatever the reason for the lack of intel, Dunlevy had almost no army to muster. The hill at Down was relinquished without a fight as King Mac Dunlevy fled, probably still trying to figure out what had just happened. But John de Courcy's forces didn't use the occasion to celebrate. 
They took stock of their plunder, and they began reinforcing the fort, for they knew that Dunleavy would return to reclaim his city on the hill. But it just so happened that a papal legate named Vivian was residing at Down at the time. He at first tried to negotiate a truce between Dunleavy and Tecorsi that would have resulted in Dunleavy paying John some sort of tribute. But these Normans were not after money. From Flanders, quote, The principal aim of John's aristocratic knights was to seize foreign territory, settle on it themselves, create estates, install tenants, and marry the sisters and daughters of the other invading Normans and establish their own dynasty. They were land-hungry. They wanted medieval society's primary recourse on which to create lordships and establish their status among their fellow aristocrats. Dunleavy's aim was to recapture the land from which he had been driven. Their aims were unreconcilable and a battle was inevitable. End quote. And indeed, a battle took place just eight days later. Geraldus Cambrensis tells us that the Irish army that showed up arrived naked, bearing only weapons to display their bravery in the face of the Normans. Modern historians doubt this claim, thinking that Geraldus simply meant that they showed up without armor or mail, but no one really knows. Clothed or not, several thousand Irishmen answered the call of their king, Rory Mac Dunleavy and they brought with them the Irish weapons of the age, darts, which are much larger than what we think of today, and also short spears and axes, which they learned to wield during the Viking invasions. Geraldus notes that, despite the Irish never using cavalry, their speed and agility on foot was unmatched. John de Courcy arranged his men on the northwest-facing side of the hill under the shadow of the massive stone cathedral at Down, the Church of the Holy and Undivided Trinity. From this position, John would not only force the Irish to attack uphill, but also grant his archers greater range. The improvements made to the fort on the Hill of Down ensured that the Irish would fight him on a field of his choosing. Norman warriors needed space. They never formed a tight phalanx like, like the ancient Greeks, and they required a wide, flat ground to swing their great swords. The archers, too, performed better with space. It was just the Norman style. By forcing the Irish to the northwest side of Down, John could concentrate his tiny force but it also ensured that the Irish would have to trudge through soggy marshlands around the River Coil. The marshlands also protected his flanks. The hope, of course, was that this would pinch the Irish up the slope, reducing their numerical superiority. In front and center of the Norman formation was John de Courcy, on foot and armored, surrounded by his knights, the heavy infantry. Flanking the armored warriors were the lighter infantry curving up the hillside, and behind them were the Irish reserves and the archers. Placing himself and his best warriors at the front was dangerous but strategic. He knew that they would have to withstand a deadly onslaught, and if any of his men relinquished a single foot of ground, the entire line would be at risk of quickly rolling up into pandemonium. He and his knights were better prepared than anyone else to stand their ground. Rory Mac Dunleavy knew he needed to not only make the Normans flee, but to utterly destroy them. Otherwise, they would return in greater numbers. Dunleavy's men began fording the coil marshes, and John called his archers forward, and he ordered them to fire. The arrows began bringing down the Irish before they had a chance to cross the marshes. Panicked at the mounting casualties before even engaging the enemy, Dunleavy told his men to race as fast as they can through the marshes to close the distance. His only hope was to overwhelm the usurpers of his city. And so John moved his archers behind his line once again, and he prepared for the melee phase of the battle. By the time Dunleavy's men reached the dry, flat ground below John's forces, they were waterlogged, chilled, bleeding, angry, and eager to spill Norman blood. And King Rory Mac Dunleavy rallied his troops together to prepare the charge up the hill. 
and at once they let out a terrifying and deafening war cry and tore up the hill like a river broken free of a dam. And as the Irish drew within feet of the Norman line, John and his knights hurled a volley of spears at them, hoping to soften his adversaries one last time. John knew every hope the Irish had lay in this initial charge. It must be repelled at all cost. This is where all those years of training and discipline would pay off. The Irish smashed into the Norman knights, and the knights swung their huge swords, beating back the wave, mauling, lopping, severing, and stabbing. And they stayed together, fighting side by side, aiding each other in melee, refusing to give up any ground. And after several minutes of intense and bloody fighting, it grew clear that the initial Irish attack was failing to break through. As the Irish in the rear pressed forward through the huddled masses to get to the fighting, John ordered his archers to let fly again, and those Irish to the rear fell in droves. Dunleavy's men were now in a dangerous position, pinched between archers and longswords. The Irish army was falling into a panic, where each man began looking after his own kin over trying to win a battle, just hoping at least to survive the unfolding disaster. Those at the front began tearing back down the hill, trampling those who were still making their way up. But as they broke ranks and fled, John Archers had their bows bent and waiting. And at his command, they let fly and felled many an Irishman with arrows in their backs. The light infantry on John's flanks then hurled their spears, impaling any brave soul who was still coming up the hill. John de Courcy was a Norman, and Normans always looked for a complete victory. Seeing the opportunity before him, he hearkened his knights once again to his side, and he called for the squires to bring up the war horses. The knights mounted their steeds, formed up, and charged down the hillside towards the fleeing Irish. This sight for an Irishman on this day must have looked like hell itself. John's knights only numbered around 22 men, but they were the 12th century equivalent of an armored tank division. Steve Flanders points out that most of the Irishmen had probably never even seen a mounted, armored Norman cavalry charge before. Had the thousands of Irishmen rallied into some semblance of order, they could have easily taken the knights but most fled into the marshes, wading through the grass and the mud for dear life. John's charge wasn't totally unplanned. As he chased the Irish, his foot soldiers and archers followed him down the hill, and any Irishman at this point, caught in the marsh, made for an easy, floundering target. Others, who stood their ground, fell with missing limbs or heads, and the banks of the coil were turning red. From Draldus, quote, he who had seen how John de Courcy had wielded his sword with one stroke lopping off heads and with another arms. End quote. The battle for Hill of Down was over. King Rory MacDunlevy was soundly defeated by this young Norman upstart. Less than six months later, Dunlevy would try again with an even larger force and would again be defeated by de Courcy. And after this last battle, as Steve Flanders tells us, John de Courcy was the undisputed master of all of Ulster. Success compiled success, and more and more men flocked to serve this rising charismatic leader. And by the end of 1177, John de Courcy was called by all the Prince of Ulster. Geraldus even has John fulfilling an ancient prophecy by St. Columba of a poor and needy fugitive from another land who would arrive at Down with a small army and spill so much blood that the river coil would run red. There was apparently another prophecy from Arthurian legend that a fair-haired man riding a white stallion with eagles on his emblems would conquer Ulster. Luckily for John, the de Courcy crest bore three eagles on it, and he just so happened to be riding a white horse that day. Take all this with a grain of salt, of course. It could just be the 12th century equivalent of propaganda, but again, who knows? 
And speaking of propaganda, John DeCourcy was an expert at it. Despite running the emerald fields red with their blood, he knew the way to an Irishman's heart. He gave all the holdings of the former king of Down to the church, removing the lands from secular authority and placing them in the hands of the clergy. He then dedicated Down to the most beloved and treasured saint of the Irish, St. Patrick. From thenceforward, Down was renamed Downpatrick. The old cathedral of Downpatrick was handed over to the care of the Benedictine monks, supported by John's own patronage. It was around this time that the remains of St. Patrick, St. Bridget, and St. Columba were discovered in the city of Downpatrick, and John de Courcy saw that they were reverently relocated to the cathedral under the auspices of papal legates. These moves were enormous acts of patronage towards the church in Ulster, and the clergymen quickly moved to support him in his future endeavors, for John's interests were now the church's interests. John then revived the old Celtic monastery of Inish Crusgrade on the northern banks of the River Coyle and gave it to the care of the Cistercians for the establishment of Inch Abbey. This abbey overlooked the bloody battlefield of John's rise to power, and it was for him atonement for all of the blood. To his loyal knights, he granted them feudal settlements. The indigenous Irish of Ulster now found themselves under Norman feudalism. John was, in a sense, operating as a king, dispensing lands to his tenants-in-chief, who then dispensed those holdings to lesser men. When John de Courcy put out the call for arms, these lords and now their Irish feudal tenants turned out to fight, for whom they now owed fealty. John then went on a massive castle-building campaign in the classic Norman Mott and Bailey style, which is just a fancy term for a stone keep on a hill. And in total, John built or improved at least 75 castles throughout Ulster. This was his chainmail armor that would protect his holdings from whatever enemy might come across the sea. For John was not aiming to set himself up as a marauder. Steve Flanders tells us that John's castles were built to, quote, "...protect his most vital assets after the land, the local Irish peasantry. Without their daily toil, no crops were sown or harvested, no animals were husbanded, no smithies worked, and no wealth was created. And what was true for John was also true for his tenants." Far from brooding menacingly over a local population crushed under its military superiority, the local castle was a source of reassurance, security, justice, and active defense. It demonstrated what every peasant sought, a reliable lord who could defend his territory and his tenants from attack and offer laws and justice to make everyday life as safe and secure as possible. End quote. John's capital in Ulster and his crown jewel of his defense was the impregnable castle at Carrickfergus. It was a massive, multi-story keep with access to the sea. And to add to the de Courcy lore, it was built upon a freshwater well that was said to have holy qualities about it. The walls to the castle were almost 12 feet thick and 120 feet high. Nothing like Carrickfergus had existed in Ulster before. And more than anything, it represented a new era in Northern Ireland the era of John de Courcy. And it was around this time that we learned that John gained a wife, Africa, daughter of the king of the Isle of Man, and you certainly don't marry a king's daughter without high hopes for yourself. John then made a move that was truly one of independence. He founded his own coin mints, minting silver halfpennies and farthings, and the coins bore the image of St. Patrick, not the king of England. Secure in his wealth, now John's patronage to the church grew exponentially, and he and Africa established abbeys, monasteries, and priories all over Ulster and packed them full of Benedictine and Augustinian monks, 
John's wife Africa attributed her survival of a stormy sea voyage to God answering her prayers. And out of thanksgiving, she founded an abbey named Yugum Dei, the Yoke of God. And it was during this expansive period of patronage, in 1180, that he met a Cistercian monk who must have made an impression on him. The monk's name was Jocelyn. And John de Courcy commissioned Jocelyn with writing The Life of St. Patrick. And from this work stems pretty much every tale that we have about this universally beloved saint. In 1194, King Richard the Lionheart of England appointed John de Courcy Justicer of Ireland. And this was the zenith of his power. Five years later, King Richard died and was succeeded by his ambitious and maltempered brother John. Under Richard's shadow, little brother John had been made Lord of Ireland and it seems had a distaste for John de Courcy's independent attitude under his lordship. It's hard to pinpoint the exact reasons, but there was serious animosity between the two Johns. One suspicion is that the coin minting operations were the main source of trouble. We know that in 1202, King John invited de Courcy to England to make his peace with him. But John de Courcy had zero trust in King John, and if history is a judge, his assessment of this infamous king was probably correct. For as I said at the beginning of this episode, this was the same King John of Robin Hood and Magna Carta fame. King John, famously and fatefully, would suffer no aristocrat to snub him. And so, John de Courcy was one of his first victims. He ordered another Norman knight named Walter de Lacy to seek out de Courcy and have him arrested. In 1204, there is some evidence that an attempt was made, however the peasantry came out in force against de Lacy to protect John. The details on this incident are scant, so we don't know exactly how it went down. But Walter de Lacy's son had another idea. There's an old account from the Book of Howth that details how Hugh de Lacy schemed to capture John de Courcy. The story is that de Lacy sought to buy off some of John's men, that they might betray and capture him when he was unaware. But they warned de Lacy that to try and capture John de Courcy was at serious peril to one's life. For he was huge and strong, and he was always armed and armored, except for one day of the year, Good Friday. Quote, On that day he would wear no shield, harness, nor weapon, but would be in the church, kneeling at his prayers, after he had gone about the church five times barefooted. End quote. I like to let my imagination create the image of this great warrior humbling himself without armor or weapons and kneeling before the blessed sacrament in the sanctuary, perhaps in a state of deep prayer amid the sensory experience that would have been the Celtic rite of mass in the 12th century. The chanting, the incense, the candlelight. John might be forgiven if he failed to notice the group of armed soldiers closing in on him from the shadows. Allegedly, as the small force attempted to lay hands on John, he seized a crucifix pole, and with it he slew thirteen men before the altar of God, until they finally subdued him. The story is more than likely exaggerated, but it does demonstrate not only the piety of de Courcy, but also his prowess as a warrior. Upon his capture, Hugh de Lacy took control of Ulster and dispossessed him of all of his lands. And somehow or another, John escaped the grip of de Lacy, we don't know how. But in 1205, John de Courcy amassed a fleet of warships from his brother-in-law, the King of Man, and attacked de Lacy in Ulster. And he laid siege to Dundrum Castle, which de Courcy himself built. But his castle was built too well, and the siege failed, and with it, the entire conquest. 
In response, King John officially stripped John de Courcy of all of his lands in Ireland and gave him over to de Lacy. The next few years for de Courcy are foggy, but some historians think he fled to his family lands back in Normandy and sought sanctuary. Others say that he was imprisoned and left for dead in the Tower of London. It appears, though, around 1207, John made his peace with the king, and he returned to England, freed or pardoned, we don't know. As late as 1210, when King John launched another expedition into Ireland, there's evidence that de Courcy lent his intimate knowledge of the land to the king. But King John had bigger problems than Ireland brewing. His tenants-in-chief were in a state of complete revolt. They had long grown weary of this monarch who taxed and imprisoned and made war with impunity. And as king, he did not deign to consult their council on anything. The situation deteriorated so much that King John faced either an overthrow of his throne or acquiesced to the demands of his barons. And they presented him with a document that codified what we would call today constitutional limitations on the king of England, essentially turning it into an office. It guaranteed certain rights to the church, it limited the feudal payments that the king could suck out of the land, and most pertinent to how de Courcy was treated, it protected the king's tenants from illegal imprisonment and allowed them swift justice. Ironically, though, John de Courcy is listed as one of the barons who attended the signing on the side of the king. And legend has it that after all this, John de Courcy crossed himself and he went on pilgrimage to the Holy Land where he later died. In truth, no one knows. It is relatively clear that he was dead by 1219 when Africa received her rights to his land. And he would have been almost 70 years old around this time. So, I began this episode with a question. Who the hell was John de Courcy? And now, after 5,600 words, I think we have some idea. With his tale being over 800 years old, it's no surprise that a certain amount of myth and legend have clouded his story. For his descendants, they can look back and attempt to make a claim that they have a special right in the presence of the King of England. For the Irish, and really for the world, a significant part of the popularity of the cult of St. Patrick is perhaps, with a degree of annoyance, owed to this Anglo-Norman conqueror. Author Steve Flanders, in his book John de Courcy, Prince of Ulster, closed with the following summation, quote, John de Courcy personified the idealized self-image of the Anglo-Norman knight. He conquered new territory. He was courageous. He led his men from the front, and he was always in the thick of the action, just like William the Conqueror. In an age of division, destruction, and loss, John de Courcy symbolized the ideal Anglo-Norman warrior lord to his fellow aristocrats. His destruction at the hands of the devious and villainous King John adds extra poignancy to his story. As the dawn of mist slowly cleared over Downpatrick, they reveal a true Norman here on his white horse, his army ranged behind him, ready for conquest. John stepped into history as a prophetically foretold star of his own wild romance, and at its end, he disappeared back into the realms of adventure, tale-telling, and legend. End quote. But perhaps a more grounded way to remember our subject comes from author and archaeologist T.E. McNeil from his Anglo-Norman Ulster, published in 1980. And the first paragraph of the first chapter reads, quote, However much a ruler may or may not succeed in subordinating himself to economic or social forces operating in his society, there are times when his personality matters. With an invasion or colonization, this is particularly true. And so, in discussing the Anglo-Normans in Ulster, we must start with one man, John de Courcy.
I really hope you guys enjoyed that story. I think that story is an absolute blast. There's just something about getting a story that's complicated with myth and reality and trying to figure out what really happened while having a little fun with the mythology, too. I just I love that stuff. And besides, at the end of one of my favorite movies, which also happens to be a Western, there's a line that I always remember, and I remember it especially while I was doing this episode. And they say, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Anyway, I hope you liked it. I already went through my sales pitch about ratings and reviews and Patreon subscriptions, so you guys know all of that. I would be remiss if I didn't thank my little sister Courtney for the awesome cover art that she constantly does for this show. It's a huge benefit. To me, it just adds such a nice touch to the show that I I could not do on my own. So my little sister Courtney really kills it with that. If you are in need of freelance work, she is available for that. Her website is cjdejulius.myportfolio.com. You can go there, get in touch with her, and see some of the other work that she does. She's really, really talented, obviously. If you want to get a hold of me, my email is stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at sdejulius. Or shoot me a message on the Written in Blood Facebook page. And so we'll see you guys in a couple weeks with the almost episode that, of course, is going to be about something Irish. And until then, this has been Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And hope everybody has a happy St. Patrick's Day. See you later. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.